Well, good morning, Harmony. I want to welcome in our Burlington and Fort Madison campuses today. Great to have you with us. And uh, I'm so excited this morning to be able to introduce to you uh, one of my best friends uh, in all the world. And he definitely comes from a uh, different part of the world. But uh, this is uh, Dr. Joseph uh, Bosco. He goes by Bosco Bangura. And uh, I first met Bosco back in 2002 uh, when I was doing a ministry trip in West Africa. So uh, at that point, I was a pastor of Global Ministries. And I was in West Africa looking for some some partners and how uh, the church that I was a part of at that point could get more involved in what God uh, was doing in that part of the world. And uh, while I was there, I had the opportunity to to meet Bosco, who was uh, teaching at a Bible college there. And uh, if you know anything about Sierra Leone, uh, you you may not, but uh, during the the entire decade of the 90s and really spilling over into the early 2000s, there was just a brutal civil war uh, that was depicted in a movie uh, called Blood Diamond uh, by uh, Leonardo DiCaprio was it in that. I wouldn't necessarily suggest that you watch it, uh, but uh, maybe that you have. Uh, just uh, kind of explaining uh, what was going on and was the cause of that. And so uh, Bosco lost both a, a father uh, and a brother uh, during that civil war and uh, was uh, significant, though, a part of uh, the country coming out of that and particularly in ministering uh, to the churches and to the believers uh, through teaching at the seminary, through pastoring. Um, he now, um, in the, the meantime, over the last 16 years, has gone and gotten his uh, PhD. Uh, he now is ministering out of South Africa, traveling all over uh, Europe and Africa to teach, to write, um, and to really to raise up African leaders. And so uh, we had the opportunity to have him come here. Harmony's actually been a part uh, of his ministry in, in the past. I took a, a trip a couple of years ago to minister with him. In fact, we uh, now today will have ministered together on three continents, all right? So Africa, Europe, and now finally here in the United States, all right? So... Great to have you with us here today, Bosco. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Chris, for having me here. And thank you, Harmony, for finally getting to see faces and the names of people, you know, to meet you here. And on behalf of my wife and my son, Jonathan, and my wife, Susan, who are based in South Africa, I bring you greetings in the Lord. It's so wonderful to come to this fellowship and see brothers and sisters in the Lord who are passionate about their faith, and to share what we also do in Africa. Because indeed, in Africa, you know, that, that's a huge continent. Many people think, in my encounters, that Africa is one country, but we are 53 nations in Africa, huge population, and a lot of prospects and opportunities in the great continent of Africa. For instance, the church is growing in Africa, and in missiology, they now say that you know, non-Western Christianity, particularly one coming from Africa, is perhaps the most vibrant, the most active on uh, 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 the global Christian uh, uh, calendar. So I, I am here, you know, to just talk about the story of Africa, talk about where ministry is, even though the church is growing, there is still need for trained biblical leaders who focus on what Christ is and tries to transform society through a knowledge of his word. You know, and that, that has taken me to a lot of places. Chris, of course, came to Sierra Leone a long time ago now, and we've kept contact from there. I've worked in Liberia, Cote d'Ivoire, Ghana, Uganda, Cameroon, and now South Africa, as well as uh, amongst the African migrants in Europe. Because when an African moves, they don't just move like that. They move with their faith. And if this faith is in Jesus, it transforms their worldview 
and it transforms who they are and how they encounter life in, 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 in the places that they've gone. So in brief, that is what I've been doing, teaching in ministry, training leaders, but also helping to build up the capacity of local churches through uh, leadership development and also pioneering missions. So I hope in the next few days I'll be able to share with some of you and probably that I will meet more of the story of Africa and where you can come in to help us move this work. Okay. So one of the things we need to understand, and you kind of can miss this sometimes, there, there are a billion people that live in Africa. Sure. A billion. And uh, the church is growing by leaps and bounds there. Uh, but one of the huge challenges that they have as well, that they're growing um, in, in, in breadth, um, growing in depth can be a challenge because yep. there are very few trained uh, pastors and leaders. And yep. so uh, Bosco's role uh, in regards to, to doing that and digging in and being able to do that is just, just so significant. There's such a need need uh, for, for pastors and leaders to be able to lead these new believers that are coming on and yeah. to, to spread and to teach uh, sound doctrine. And so, so thankful for what he's doing. And Bosco, yeah. why don't you just share with us this morning about how we can be praying uh, for you um, and Sierra Leone and uh, Africa as a whole in the days ahead. Yeah, well, I come from Sierra Leone, as you said, uh, we've been challenged over the last 15, 20 years by two major disasters. One of them is the rebel war. About 50,000 people were killed. We have a lot of amputees and so on. And quite recently, we have been also challenged by Ebola, the world's deadliest ever outbreak of Ebola. 11,500 people were killed. Out of those, we had something like 500 health workers. And so the health system crumbled in the face of Ebola. Sierra Leone needs your prayers in terms of a revived healthcare system for our poor people. But in terms of Africa, Africa, as the church grows, there are challenges, particularly from Islam. You know, Islam, of course, is not just a threat to the West, but even in Africa, it is a threat. In West Africa, there is what we call Boko Haram. Uh, they, they move from Nigeria, northern Nigeria, to parts of uh, Gambia, Senegal, and so on, the Sahel region. They, 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 they sort of promote a violent form of Islam that challenges anything that opposes Islam. And whoever stands in their way gets killed. In East Africa, we have Al-Shabaab. They are also terrorizing people there. So if you would please pray that these Islamic terrorists will find it in themselves to encounter Christ and their lives will be changed. That's the first prayer point I would like you to pray for, for Africa. Secondly, Africa's population is a youthful population. In fact, they say that, you know, in the next couple of years, maybe 50 years or so, the population in Africa, those who are 30 and below, would be quite significant. And these people need proper leadership. Unfortunately, African countries are mismanaged. They are misgoverned. So please pray for righteous leaders in those nations so that the resources of Africa can be translated to, to its people. And lastly, pray for the churches. The churches are growing, but they lack the biblical leaders that, that, that will transform society. So pray that the work we do would help those biblical leaders to grow biblical Christianity in Africa, that Africa will rise and spread the gospel across, across the globe. 
All right, plenty to pray for there, right? Our brothers and sisters all around the world, sometimes that we can uh, forget about that. But we, we have millions, uh, millions, hundreds of millions of brothers and sisters around the world that are ministering yeah. and trying to follow Jesus in difficult circumstances. Yeah. And we need to be lifting them up in prayer. And so let's do that right now, all right? So as I lead, uh, why don't you join me in going before the Father. Uh, Father, uh, we come to you today and we thank you so much for our brother being able to be with us today. I thank you for uh, personally for our longtime partnership in the gospel. Uh, I thank you for the way that uh, we've just been able to serve and see you work um, in Africa, in Europe, and, and now here um, in the U.S. And uh, we just thank you that you, you knit us together with people who um, are from uh, much different cultures, much different lands, have much different experiences, but uh, in Christ that we are one. And so we rejoice in that today. And I just want to pray uh, for Bosco and his ministry. I pray for uh, Susan and Jonathan, and they are uh, back in South Africa, that you'll encourage them and strengthen them and provide for them. Uh, I want to pray for Bosco as he teaches and as he writes and as he lectures and as he preaches and as he disciples that your Holy Spirit will undergird him and uh, give him favor in your sight. Make him very fruitful for you. May he uh, lean in, uh, on you and abide in you so that he may bear much fruit for the kingdom. Uh, Lord, we want to pray for um, Africa and we want to pray for the, the desperate needs that are there, the physical needs that are there. We want to pray for the political needs. Uh, we we want to pray most of all for the spiritual needs. We thank you that, that every day thousands and thousands of Africans are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And we rejoice in that today. But Lord, we know that uh, those believers need shepherds. They need leaders. And so we want to pray that you will raise them up and you will use Bosco and others like him uh, to do that. Uh, Lord, we want to pray that the church will go strong. It will grow vibrant. And we pray that it will be at the leading edge of seeing transformation take place for the gospel's sake. So, Lord, now we want to pray as we come uh, before your word, uh, we want to pray that uh, we will recognize and realize that the ones in whom you delight are those who tremble before your word. Yeah. We pray that we will, we will do that today, that we will hear all that you have to say. And we want to pray, Lord, that we will see Jesus today in a way that we have never seen him before yeah. and that we will be changed by it for your sake. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Why don't you give Bosco a hand here this morning? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, well today, after nearly an entire year, we're going to begin to look at the final chapter in the big story. And the final chapter, of course, is found in the last book of the Bible, Revelation. We're going to take two weeks to look at Revelation. The two Sundays before Christmas, we're going to be in Revelation. Now, that's not the usual place that you would think you would find yourself, right? Before Christmas, Revelation, you don't really think that Christmas and Revelation go together. I want to suggest to you that they do. And the reason that they do is because you can't really understand Jesus' first coming, Christmas, unless you understand or at least keep in mind his second coming, which is what Revelation is about. And so uh, today we're going to look at Revelation chapter 1, and then next Sunday we're going to bring the big story to a close, message number 50 uh, from Revelation 21 and 22, the last two chapters of the Bible. And I want encourage you. I'm not sure that you've ever heard a message from Revelation 21 and 22. You're going to want to hear the one next Sunday, so plan to be there, all right? So if you have a copy of the scriptures, go ahead and turn with me to Revelation 1. Uh, if, you, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the chair or uh, the pew in front of you, and you can find Revelation 1 on page 666 in those Bibles. <laughs> Actually, I'm just messing with you. It's page... Uh, 810, 810. 
So just a little end times humor for you uh, there. Those of you who maybe are new to church are like, these, I'm leaving. These people are just too weird. But um, 810, all right, 810. Anyway, uh, while you're getting there, I want to state up front my goals for the next two weeks. All right, and I have two of them, and I think it's important for us to, to understand where we're headed. Number one, I want to show you the main message of Revelation and how it fits into the big story. This means that uh, over the next two weeks, I'm, I'm not going to get into the weeds, so to speak. I know this, this might be disappointing to some of you, uh, but we're not going to talk about who the Antichrist or the beast or the prostitute or the dragon are, okay? So I'm not going to hypothesize about uh, whether it's uh, Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton or Vladimir Putin or one of those, okay? So, so I've been around long enough to know that in every age, people are hypothesizing about those things. So uh, when I was in high school, uh, the Antichrist was Mikhail Gorbachev, okay, uh, the president of Russia because he had that birthmark on his head, and that was the mark of the beast, okay? And, and then the next uh, one it was, it was Bill Clinton, and it was Barack Obama, and now it's just a combination of a bunch of different things. And so um, I, I just want to suggest to you that, that, that those things are, are not the main point by far of Revelation, all right? So I'm not going to talk about whether we should be pre or post or amillennialists. I'm not going to talk about whether Jesus is going to return uh, before, during, or after the tribulation. And I'm not going to do so because while those things certainly are worthy of discussion and study, I really get concerned that we can become so obsessed about the when and the how that we miss the what, and the what is the most important thing by far in Revelation. Now, I just want to tell you right here at the beginning what the what is, okay? What is the main message of Revelation? You all ready for this? The main message of Revelation is that Jesus is coming again, and he's coming again in victory. Jesus is coming again, and he's coming again in, in victory. So you maybe heard it said before that I've read the end of the book and we win, uh, that, that's, that's true, but it would be better stated that I've read the end of the book and Jesus wins. And because Jesus wins, so do we. That's the main message of Revelation. That's what we're going to focus on. Number two, I hope to show you over the next two weeks how Revelation is a great resource for the here and now. How it's not just an interesting book to study and discuss, but much more importantly, it's an incomparable asset for the Christian life. I really believe that we have a desperate need for revelation. We have, we have a desperate, we desperately need the message of revelation to help us live the Christian life. We desperately need to know how Jesus' coming victory should change the way that we are living right now. So with that in mind, let's read chapter one. We're going to read the entire thing. All right. So follow along as I read. John, so... This is the Apostle John writing. He says this, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near." John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, 
and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So, quite a chapter, is it not? A lot of imagery here, a lot of things that we could talk about, but I really just want to talk about three this morning, all right? There are three key things that we uh, have to know if we're going to understand the book of Revelation. Three key things here from Revelation chapter 1. First, we have to know the context of the book. In in verse 9, John tells us that he is writing Revelation from an island called Patmos. Uh, That's a small Greek island um, in the uh, Aegean Sea right off the, the coast of Turkey, the west coast of Turkey, all right? And John says that he's there, he's on the island because he has been preaching about Jesus. Now, don't get confused here, all right? John's not on Patmos because his church decided to send him on a tropical vacation to thank him for his ministry, all right? Uh, He's not on sabbatical. Patmos wasn't the first century equivalent of a sandals resort. It was Rome's version of Alcatraz. It was the location of a Roman penitentiary, and John was sent there during a great time of persecution against the early church. Uh, Revelation was likely written near the very end of the first century. So John is the last apostle alive. All the rest of them have been martyred, all right? They've all been killed. They're all dead. They're all gone. He's the only original one left. And now he, okay, is basically in exile. He's in prison for preaching the word of God. The emperor at this point is a guy by the name of Domitian. And Domitian uh, was an emperor who made uh, Nero look like a choir boy, all right? He, he was basically the most sadistic of all the Roman emperors. He was a guy um, who, uh, when people kind of made fun of him, so he, he was 
was apparently a very unattractive guy. It said that he had this big wart on his head and that he would rub uh, to the point where blood and ooze would, would come out of it. And so he was the subject of a lot of jokes, a lot of people making fun of him. But anytime he caught wind that somebody was making fun of him, he would have them killed. Okay, he would have them killed. He, he became emperor uh, because he stood by as his brother Titus died for poisoning. He knew he was dying for poisoning. In fact, it's, I, I would say it's likely that he actually was responsible for the poisoning so that he could become the emperor. He went on to seduce his married niece. Uh, and after she got pregnant, he made her have an abortion, which ended up in her death as well as the baby. Most of all, or at least most significantly for the early Christians, is that he required everyone to call him and to worship him as Lord and God. He says, I'm Lord and God, you're going to worship me as such, which, as you can imagine, created a real problem for the early Christians, right? Because the early Christians had a choice. They can worship him as Lord and God, or they can worship Jesus as Lord or God, all right? They had a choice, and when they refused to worship Domitian, he unleashed one of the greatest persecutions that the church has ever known. So, so historians tell us that he regularly took Christians and he would have them tied to two separate horses, okay, limb, limb by limb, and he would send the horses off in different directions, which would lead to the Christians being torn apart literally at the seams. He, he would have them taken and sewn into animal skins and then fed to wild dogs, uh, he would have them impaled on, on stakes, okay, covered with pitch and lit on fire to light his gardens. He, he even had, and, and I, it's hard to even imagine this, but he would even have them uh, taken and have holes drilled in their skull and then molten lead poured into their brains because they refused to worship him. Revelation 2 actually refers to some of this persecution when it tells of a man named Antipas who was killed for remaining faithful to Jesus. Church tradition records that he was boiled to death in a brass bull for refusing to participate in emperor worship. Now, now here's why this is important for us to know. It's important because it reveals that revelation is meant to provide struggling Christians with what they need to persevere in the faith. So, so I can pretty much guarantee that the, the early Christians didn't read Revelation in order to figure out the charts and the timelines and who is what and how is all this kind of going to go downhill or going to go, all right? They, they, they read it because they, they needed strength. They needed a message. They needed something to help them to hold on in the face of the trials and the tribulations they were going through. And here's what we know. It's indisputable that the message of Revelation is what enabled the early Christians to face the great persecution that came their way. It's indisputable that Revelation was the key to Christianity surviving the first century. So, so here's what you need to know, okay? Uh, in, the, in the first century, the, the, the church was small, okay? The church was struggling. It was under all kinds of pressure. Satan, through the Roman Empire, was trying to do everything that he could to stamp out Christianity before it even got going. And so what God did through the Holy Spirit, through even Jesus speaking to the Apostle John, is he gave them this message of the future of what's coming down the road that would enable them to face what they're going through. Now, now here, here's what this means for us. This should be really encouraging to us today. Because if Revelation was able to help and to carry the early Christians through what they were struggling with, 
Don't you think it can help us today? Here's what I know as your pastor, okay? I know that every single person listening to me today has some kind of trial going on right now. It might be a physical one. It might be a financial one. It might be a relational one. It might be all of the above. Or it might simply be a a spiritual one, one in which you are wrestling with your faith and and you've got these different pressures or maybe doubts or concerns and and you are struggling to hold on and to to really uh, fully be all in with Jesus and and really following him in the day-to-day of life. I know that the devil is working in your life to try to give you, uh, to try to get you to give up on Jesus. Jesus. Therefore, there's not one single one of us that does not need the message of Revelation. And if Revelation helped the first Christians, you better believe it can help us today. Now, how can it do that? Well, it can do that, of course, through its message. And what is that message? Well, for that, we need to talk about who the main character of Revelation is. And who is the main character of Revelation? Now, this should be an easy one, right? Because we have been now, this is message 49 in the big story. And in the first 48, the main character of every book of the Bible that we have looked at has been one person, right? His name is, you know him as Jesus, all right? So guess who the main character in Revelation is? It's Jesus. Now, sometimes that gets lost on us, right? Because again, we get all caught up in all of these other things uh, in Revelation. But it's really, really clear from verse 1 and throughout the entire book, That revelation is about Jesus. Notice what verse 1 says. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. The Greek word for revelation is apocalypsis. Apocalypsis, from which we get, of course, our word apocalypse. Now today, the word apocalypse uh, refers to the end of the world as we know it, right? It's the end of the world. And normally, of course, nowadays, uh, the end of the world, the apocalypse is associated with zombies, right? There's always zombies in the apocalypse today. In fact, zombie has now become an adjective to describe the apocalypse. It's the zombie apocalypse, all right? However, the, the word apocalypsis, okay, d- doesn't refer to actually the end of the world, but rather it simply means unveiling. It means to reveal something that was formerly veiled. So, so here's how we can read verse 1. The unveiling of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. So get this, we've got the unveiling of Jesus, which God the Father gave him to show his servants, you and me, what's coming down the road, what's coming soon. In other words, the book of Revelation is about God the Father unveiling things about Jesus that were previously unknown, things that had not been previously revealed. In a real sense, Revelation is a coming out party that God the Father gives to God the Son to show us what Jesus is truly like. Now, you might be thinking, well, why is this necessary? Why does Jesus need a coming out party? Well, it's necessary because when Jesus came to earth the first time, he came veiled in human flesh. So here's what Philippians chapter 2 tells us, all right? Paul says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, 
being born in the likeness of men. So when Jesus stepped out of heaven 2,000 years ago and took on human flesh, his deity, his divine nature became partially, if not almost completely obscured. While he was still fully God, his humanity veiled his deity. So, so Jesus is fully God and fully man in, in one being. And so, so when he stepped out of heaven, okay, and took on humanity, took on the flesh like you and I have, his deity, he, he was still fully God, but his deity became obscured. It became veiled. In fact, this is what we sing every Christi uh, Christmas in Hark the Herald Angels Sing, right? You know the line. It goes like this, veiled in flesh... The Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Have you ever thought about that line? Veiled in, in flesh, the, the God, he's the Godhead, okay? He, he's God, but he's veiled in human flesh. Now, there were times during his first coming when Jesus took the veil off. So just think about the transfiguration. Or think about some of those miracles that we've studied in, in the big story, right? When he calmed the storm, all right? So, so there, there were little snippets, okay, where the veil came off. But for the most part, the glory and the greatness of who Jesus truly is was veiled. And so what we have here in, in Revelation is God pulling back the veil and giving us a glimpse of the glory and the majesty of Jesus and what it's going to be like when he comes back the second time. Because when he comes back the second time, it's not going to be like the first time. You with me there? So, so maybe uh, a Superman illustration will help here a little bit. Okay? It's always dangerous, but we'll, we'll go down this route, right? So uh, normally, okay, for, and most of the time, a Superman walks around and lives not as Superman, but as his alter ego, Clark Kent, right? And Clark Kent, you know, just looks like a rather normal guy, right? There doesn't look anything special about him. In fact, he bumbles around on purpose some of the time. And why does he do that? He does that to hide his identity, to, to veil who he really is. However, every once in a while, and you got to go back here a little bit, so some of you can go back with me here. Superman will step into a what? He'll step into a phone booth. They don't have phone booths anymore, right? All right, he'll step into a phone booth. And he will pull back the suit or the veil, so to speak, and all of a sudden we'll be able to see who he really is, the majesty and the power of who he really is. Well, that's what it was like when Jesus came the first time. For the most part, he looked rather ordinary. He didn't stand out whatsoever. In fact, his own family was like, he's just our brother, right? He's just our son. There's nothing special about this guy. But then every once in a while... Jesus would pull back the robe, the veil, and we would get a picture, we'd get a glimpse of who he really is. However, as a result of all of this, a lot of people miss Jesus' first coming. Most people are still missing it today. However, when he comes the next time, everyone will know about it. Well, there are many who missed his first coming. There's not one single person on this earth who will miss his second. How do we know that? Look at verse 7. It's probably the key verse in the whole book. It says this, behold. The word behold means look. And let me just say this to you here today. What the Holy Spirit wants us all today to do is to look. To look at Jesus. To look at him with fresh eyes. To look at who he really is. So, so look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. That's the truth. When Jesus comes again, everybody's going to recognize him. Everyone will see him for who he truly is. 
You know, today there's lots of opinions about who Jesus is. There's lots of debate about who Jesus is. Just go online sometime, okay? Everybody's got their opinion. Everybody's got their thought. When Jesus comes again, and by the way, he's, he's coming soon. You should see that, right? When he comes again, there's not going to be any debate. There are not going to be any opinions. Everybody is going to see him as he truly is. So let's today then talk about who Jesus really is. Here in Revelation 1, John gives us what we might think of as a sneak preview. He provides us with what we may consider the trailer of the bigger reveal that it's about to come. All right, And we don't have time to talk about everything because there's a lot of things about Jesus here in Revelation 1. But let me just walk you through of some of these things. All right, We'll begin in verses 5 through 6 where we learn that Jesus is the faithful witness. Uh, he is the one who always speaks and represents the truth. We learn that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead, the one whose resurrection assures the resurrection of all who place their faith in him. We learn that Jesus is the ruler of kings on earth, meaning he is completely sovereign over the affairs of this world. Now, let's pause here for a second, okay? Every single one of the things that we see about Jesus in Revelation 1 has practical application to our lives today. All right, all of this, every single one of them are worthy of your further, further study and prayer and consideration. Let me just point out here with this one and what this means for us. It means that despite the fact that our world like, looks like it's falling apart and it looks like it's in utter chaos, Jesus has the whole world in his hand and everything that is happening in our world, is, uh, he is using or is going to use to accomplish the purposes that he determined to accomplish before the foundation of the world. And we can look out at the presidents and the rulers, okay, and the kings. They are all, they are all in submission to him. Whether or not they think they are or not, he controls them, okay? He is sovereign over them. They answer to him. He is the ruler of kings on earth. Continuing on, verse 5, we learn that Jesus is the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Now, there's a whole series of sermons just in that one line. But just, just think about this for a second. Just let this sink into you. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. And you know that he loves you because he was willing to do what he needed to do to give his life, to shed his blood so that you could be free. The word literally means loosed from your sins. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, your sins have no power over you. You have been freed from them. Your sins have no penalty to give you. Jesus took that penalty for you. And one day Jesus is coming back to rid you of the presence of sin forever. He loves you that much. Finally, in verses 5 through 6, we learn that Jesus is the one who has brought us into his kingdom and given us direct access to the Father. We are in Jesus' kingdom, and as a result, we now have been made right with God, and we stand righteous in his sight. Now, all of that is wonderful, is it not? Lots for us to rejoice in there. However, we're just beginning to scratch the surface on what Revelation 1 tells us about Jesus, because it really gets interesting when we come to verses 13 through 16, all right? So in verse 13, uh, we learn that Jesus is the Son of Man. He is the son of man. And there are all kinds of illusions. In fact, I can say this. Almost everything that we're told about Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 points back to something that is said about God the Father in the Old Testament. 
So, so what we have is Old Testament allusions or what, what's been being said about the Father being applied to Jesus. That's particularly true here in this reference to the Son of Man. So here's the picture, okay? So, so you just understand what's going on in Revelation 1. Uh, the Apostle John uh, is in prison. He's on Patmos. And uh, in prison, he actually would be working on the rock quarries. So there's rock, rock quarries there that would send prisoners. That's what they would make them do. However, it's the Lord's Day, which means it's Sunday. So apparently they gave him time off. And as he's having time off, he decides that he's going to worship. It says that he's in the spirit. So he's probably singing, he's reading the word, he's praying. And as he is doing that, he hears this loud, booming, deep, roaring voice coming from behind him. So, so think of um, like James Earl Jones. Okay? And if you young people don't know who James Earl Jones is, it's Darth Vader. Okay? It's the voice of Darth Vader. Okay? Or think of our own like Chris Day okay? or Jeremiah Landon, that, that real deep, booming voice. And this, of course, grabs his attention. And he turns around because if you hear a deep, booming voice behind you, what do you do? You turn around to see who it is. And when he turns around to see who it is, he sees this picture. He has a vision of this person. And, and if you read verses 13 through 17, you know that he's just really struggling to come up with words to describe what he's seeing. I want to point out to you, by the way, that those are all symbols, okay? They're symbols to point to specific things about this vision of this person that he has seen. And he begins by saying he is one like a son of man. This is a direct reference to Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel sees a similar vision. And in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel says that I saw one like a son of man, and the son of man approached the ancient of days. Now, I love that description. The ancient of days is my favorite description of God the Father in the entire Bible. It just sounds cool, doesn't it? He's the ancient of days. Now, none of us want to be called ancient of days, right? But ancient of days means that he, he always has been, always will be. He was there long before anyone came about. Any of us were around, okay? He was there. Actually, he was there before there was even time. But it says the Son of Man is presented before the ancient of days, and the Ancient of Days bestows on the Son of Man dominion and power. He gives him a kingdom over all the peoples, all the nations, all everyone on earth and beyond. In other words, the Son of Man is given all dominion, all power, all authority. And by the way, who is John telling us is the Son of Man here in Revelation chapter 1? He's telling him he is Jesus. He is Jesus. And all the descriptions there... Okay, in verses 14 through 16, where he's talking about uh, his hair is white as snow, and he's got eyes that are flame of fire, right? He's got a sword coming out of his mouth, and his face is as brilliant, okay, and, and as bright as the sun, and it's full shining. All of those things are meant to point us to the fact that Jesus has ultimate power and ultimate control. This is the image, this overwhelming image that John is seeing of Jesus. Now, what happens then, we read it a minute ago, what happens as soon as John sees this image? What does he do? The moment that he sees it, he falls on his face as though he is dead. Now, what that means is that he wants to die. That this image of Jesus, this vision of Jesus is so powerful, is so overwhelming that it leaves him in sheer terror and he face plants because he, he just wants to be done. 
He, he's just completely undone. Just, just let me die because I can't bear it. What we need to see, friends, today is this is the same response that every single person in the Bible has when they get a picture, okay, of the exalted Jesus. When they get a picture of God, when they, they really, really see him, their, their immediate response is that they do a face plant and they want to die. Now, let me tell you what this means. It means that if Jesus were to walk in these doors this morning, we would all be on our faces, we would all be in sheer terror. So we like to think that, you know, it would really be good to have Jesus here today, right? Jesus is my best buddy. Jesus is my friend. Jesus is so meek and mild. In fact, just think of the picture that you have in your head of Jesus, the normal one you have, or at least the one that our culture gives us, right? Jesus has long flowing hair, okay, right? He's attractive. He's got really soft uh, hands and, and really uh, smooth skin, okay? And he looks like, you, you know, what we might call a, a metrosexual today, right? That, 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 that's the idea. Kind of like me this morning, okay? So um, <laughs> that's probably a bad idea. But um, uh, we, we just, we, we have this idea, I think, we, we, the, the way that our even church culture kind of paints Jesus is he's, he's kind of a nice, soft, easygoing, you know, buddy kind of guy. And we even talk about him in, in terms like, you know, we're very casual about it. My friends, if Jesus were to walk in the room today, there would be nothing casual about it at all. We would all be terror-stricken we would want, he, he would be so overwhelming, his presence would be so majestic and so powerful that we would say like Isaiah does in, in Isaiah 6, I'm undone. <laughs> I'm undone. Just, just I, I, can't, I can't do anything. I, I'm, I'm a sinful man. I am in the presence of the Lord God Almighty. And friends, we today have a desperate, desperate need for a greater vision and a greater understanding of how exalted and majestic and powerful Jesus truly is. And we have a desperate need to respond to him in such a way. Where we don't use his name casually, where we don't talk about him casually, where when we hear people use his name in vain, it pains us to hear that. It pains us to hear that because, of course, we, we, we love him, but, but we also know how disrespectful and what wrath that deserves because of how great and how powerful and how mighty he truly is. Now, that's one side of the story here, but there's another side of the story, right? Because how does Jesus respond to John? John's laying on the ground saying, just, just kill me. Okay, I'm done. But what does Jesus do? Jesus puts his right hand on him and he says two words that he speaks the most often in the Gospels. If you read the Gospels and Jesus says a lot of things, the two words that he says most often back to back are what? They are fear not. They're fear not. They're fear not. You don't have to fear, John. Yes, you've gotten a picture of me. You've got a vision of me. Yes, I'm majestic. Yes, I'm powerful. Yes, I'm mightier than you can even imagine. But guess what, John? You don't have to be afraid of me. You don't have to be in terror of me. And why don't you need to be in terror of me? Because he says, notice what Jesus goes on to say. He says that I'm the first and the last. And what does that mean? This means that Jesus has no beginning and he has no end. Jesus was there at the beginning and he's there at the end. So you know what this means? This means, hey, John, that I'll be here with you in the middle. I'm there at the beginning. I'm there at the end. I'm also going to be here with you in the middle. He tells John he doesn't have to fear because he says, I'm the living one. He says, I'm the one who died but I'm now alive forevermore. 
What he's telling John here is that I'm alive forevermore. And because you believe in me, you're going to be alive with me forevermore. Finally, John doesn't have to fear because Jesus is the one who holds the keys of death and Hades. Now, what does this mean? It means that he's the one with complete authority over life and death. That, that John's going to live because Jesus has declared that he's going to live. Jesus is the one who gets to decide who lives and who dies. End of story. He has the authority. That's what it means to have the keys, by the way, right? To have the keys. If you have the keys, you're the one who has authority. Now, now just think about how significant this would be for struggling Christians who were living under the constant threat of death. The emperor in those days, okay, was said to have had the keys, the authority to decide who lives and dies. And what Jesus is saying is not really, not really. I heard one pastor say, you know, that Caesar guy, all that he has left today is he just has a little pizza chain, okay, in in, in memory of him, right? he's, He's nothing. He's passed from the pages of history. Jesus is the one who has authority over life and death. And because he does, we know, we know because he has told us, he has promised us that we are going to live. Now, in summary, there are two things going on here in Revelation 1. Two things that we have to grab hold of. One is the fact that Jesus is greater, much greater than we imagine him to be. However great you believe Jesus to be, just recognize that you are only scratching the surface. He is, he, he's much greater than you can even fathom him to be. The second thing that we need to grab hold of is that Jesus is going to use his greatness to save us, to protect us, and to carry us through all the trials of life. This greatness of Jesus is a wonderful thing because Jesus has promised to use all his power and all his authority and all his majesty, all his might for our good to carry us through everything that we go through in life. It means that no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in, no matter what pain we are going through, no matter how much trouble we have gotten ourselves into, we don't need to fear because Jesus is going to win and because Jesus is going to win, so are we. So are we. That's the message that Revelation has for the struggling church in the first century. And that's the message that it has for struggling believers here today. Now then... The third and final thing we have to know if we're going to understand Revelation is the response it calls for. The response it calls for. So look at verse 3. Okay, and this, every verse in the Bible, I've told you before, is important. So, so, so notice what this one says. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. It seems to me that here John is telling us that there is a good a better, and a best when it comes to Revelation. Did you get that? There is a good, a better, and a best when it comes to Revelation. The good is to read it. The better is to hear or listen to it. The best is to respond to it. Now, we've done the first two today, right? We've read it. So we've got the good, okay? Uh, we've, we've heard it. We've we listened to it. So we've got the better. But the best is up to each of us individually, We have to decide if we are going to keep it, if we are going to respond to it, if we are going to do what it calls us to do today. So so listen to me, friends. There is a message for you today. There is something that God wants you to do in response to Revelation chapter 1. What is that response? Well, Revelation 1, and really the entire book, calls us to two responses. It calls us to repentance 
and it calls us to endurance. Let's talk about repentance first. Over and over again in Revelation, Jesus calls people to repent. Now just think about it this way, okay? Um, If Jesus is coming again, and if he's coming again at any moment, that's what we've seen, right? We see it over and over again. His coming is near. It could come at any time. If Jesus is coming again, and it could happen at any time, don't you think that you want to be in a state or in a place where you are ready for that coming? Like he could come in, in, in the next 10 minutes. He could come in the next 10 hours, the next 10 days, the next 10 years. We don't know exactly. The Bible doesn't tell us. In fact, it tells us not to worry exactly about the date. It just tells us to be ready for the date when it comes. You need to be in a state and in a condition where you are ready to meet Jesus, where you are ready to look at him in his powerful face and to know that he is going to say, well done, good and faithful steward, enter into the joy of his master. So, so my question for you today is, are you ready? Are you ready for his coming? How do you get ready? You get ready by repenting. You get ready by repenting. I told you before, okay, over and over again, what does it mean to repent? To repent means to turn from your sin and to turn in faith to Jesus. Look at verse 7 again. Behold, he is coming in the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Now, who are you thinking initially when it says those who pierced him? You're thinking about the Roman soldiers. That's true, but do you know who pierced him? All of us. Every one of us. We, I said it before, Martin Luther, we all carry about in our pockets his very nails. We, we, we pierced him. We're going to look on him. And then it says, and all the world will wail on account of him. Wail means mourn or it actually could be translated repent. Here's what we've got in verse 7. We have a prophecy yet again of the fact that when it's all said and done, there are going to be people from every nation, tribe, and tongue who have repented and placed their faith in Jesus Christ. The question today, is that going to include you? Is that going to include you? You see, Revelation is really a warning. It's a shot across the bow, so to speak. Okay, It's an opportunity to, to know that Jesus is coming and to get yourself ready for it. How do you get yourself ready? You get yourself ready by repenting of your sins and turning to faith in Jesus. Earlier we read about how he is the one who freed us from our sins by his blood. Have you trusted in faith that Jesus, when he died on the cross, was dying in your place and that through faith in him, you are freed, you are loosed from the sins that have bound you and have changed you and have sentenced you to an eternity uh, in hell? Have you been free from that by faith in Jesus Christ? And I just want to call to you today. I want to urge you, if you have not placed your faith in Jesus, you need to do so today. This is, ur- this is the most urgent matter in the world. Why? Because Jesus is coming. He is coming soon. And if you wait until he comes back, it will be too late. He gives you the opportunity today. He, he offers you, he affords you the opportunity to have your sins forgiven, to have a home in heaven, to be restored to God. Don't wait. Don't say, I'll get to it later. I'll worry about it when I get older, when I get out of college, when I get married, when I have kids. I'll get to it tomorrow, the next day. There might not be a next day. It might not be a next day. Turn to Jesus today. Time is short. Trust in him right now. And with that said, 
Not only does Revelation call for repentance, but it also calls for endurance. If you are a believer, Revelation is a call to hang on. It's a call to persevere in the face of hardship. So Revelation was originally written, we see this in chapter 1, to seven churches. There were seven real churches um, in really in what is modern day Turkey. Okay, seven churches. And in um, chapters two and three, we actually see individual message, seven individual messages to those churches. And in all of those messages, there, there's one thing in common, and there, that thing that is in common is that they are all encouraged by Jesus to endure, to hold on, to persevere. The word that Jesus actually uses is the word conquer. He encourages these churches to conquer. Now, conquer comes from a Greek word that we are all very familiar with, okay? All very familiar. The word conquer, you can see that in the text, uh, is a Greek word that we're all very familiar with. And we're all very familiar with it because it represents this symbol right here. You know what that symbol is, right? That's the symbol for the most popular shoe brand in history, right? What, what's, just, just help me make sure you're with me here still, all right? Well, okay, thank you. Thank you, one person, okay? All right. You all have shoes, you all have clothes, a bunch of them wearing today. But, but here's the thing, all right? So, so uh, we know the symbol, we, we know the word. Do you know what it means? It means to conquer. It means to overcome. Jesus calls us to be overcomers. To overcome in the face of um, trials and difficulty to persevere in difficulty and hardship. And ultimately, this is the message that Revelation is meant to tell us. It's meant to help us to overcome difficulty and hardship in following Jesus. It's meant to help us persevere. And how does it do so? It does so by giving us an exalted view of Jesus. It does so by showing us that he is greater, much greater than any trial or any difficulty we face. It shows us that he's greater than cancer. He's greater than depression. He's greater than divorce. He's greater than even death itself. And because he is, we can know that nothing in this universe, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever take us from his hand. I know today, I know that you've got trials. I know that you've got difficulties going on. And if you're like, I'm not really sure that I do, you're just not paying attention. Okay? You're not living in the real world. Especially if you are a believer. I just I have to say this to you again. The, the devil will do whatever he can do. He'll even use comfort. That's what he used for, for a lot of us. Okay? He'll use whatever he can to try to give a, get us to give up on the faith. You are in a trial. You are in a battle. You are in a war. The only way that you will overcome, the only way that you will Nike is by having an exalted view of Jesus. It is by seeing how great and marvelous and powerful Jesus is and by knowing that he is on your side and that he is going to carry you through every trial in life. I mean, this week, it's just interesting how the Lord works. Um, I had so many different conversations and, and emails and texts with people today in our church who, who, who just um, are, are struggling, major struggles. Now, our staff this week, we went uh, and visited shut-ins. We do that every Christmas, and we go to try to get all the shut-ins in our church and, and to, to take them um, so, so a bag of goodies and just to love on them and pray on them. And, and so I met with one lady, um, a sweet lady, who, who this year lost both of her legs to gangrene. 
And I met another lady who has a chronic um, problem, chronic pain, okay, arthritis, and can barely move, just kind of lives with that. I met with another lady who is losing, as she ages, she, she's losing her memory. I, I met with her last uh, Christmas. She didn't remember. She had no idea who I am. All right? I, I get texts from people who are struggling work, got major trials going on, people who are uh, struggling with depression, uh, people who have got all kinds of battles that they are, are dealing with, with, with sin. And what can I say to them? What hope can I give to them? Can I just say, oh, it's going to be okay? It is going to be okay, but why is it going to be okay? It's going to be okay because Jesus is winning, and he is going to win, and because he does, so are you. This trial, this difficulty is temporary. It's moment by moment. And Paul actually says that these trials, moment by moment that we're experiencing, are actually working for us a weight of glory that far outweighs them all. In fact, here, here's what Paul tells us here. Actually, I'm sorry, John tells us uh, through uh, Jesus' message to him that every believer, every believer who Nikes, who conquers, who holds on, who perseveres is going to be rewarded by Jesus. In all seven messages, there is a reward for those who Nike, for those who hold on. Let me just tell you one of them. One of them Chapter 2 and verse 7, the reward that he promises to the church at Ephesus is that if they conquer, if they Nike, if they hold on, if they stick in there, they will get to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, now think about the tree of life that is in the paradise of God, the tree, tree. Have we seen trees in the big story? You bet that we have. We saw it at the beginning of the big story. We're in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and 3. There was a tree of knowledge of good and evil that Adam and Eve were told not to eat from. What did they do? They ate from it, and in doing so, they brought death into this world. We saw another tree in the Gospels where Jesus climbed on a tree, and he climbed on the tree to take death in our place. He took that death that we deserve because of our sin. And we see another tree now here in Revelation at the end of the Bible, and it's the tree of life. It's the tree from which all who eat of it live forever, and they live forever in the paradise of God. And my friends, what Jesus is telling us is that if we endure, if we hang on, actually he says in Revelation chapter 12, how do you hang on? We hang on by the blood of the lamb and through our testimony, by holding on to our confession of faith in Jesus Christ. If we hold on to, the, our, to faith, our faith and confession of Jesus Christ, we will be able to eat from the tree of life that's in the paradise of God. We will live forever in paradise with God. That is the reward that he promises to us today if we Nike, if we hold on, if we endure. So I know you're going through battles. I know that you're going through trials, but you can hold on. You can endure. You can Nike. The first Christians do it, did it. You can do it too. Look to Jesus. Rest in who he is. Rest in what he has done. Look forward to what he is coming to do. And as you do, you will endure, and that enduring will lead to great reward. Why don't you bow your heads with me today?